Before we get started, I have a quick favor to ask. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, it would help a lot if you would take a minute to give us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts, on that app you're using or on your computer or wherever. I know podcasters are always asking this, and it's because it actually makes a big difference in how the apps recommend shows to new listeners. That's it. That's the favor. Thank you again for listening. Okay, let's get to the episode. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I am Jeff Young, the managing editor here at EdSurge. You might remember the hype about a decade ago when a new approach to online teaching was touted as this alternative to traditional college. Professors at some of the world's most famous universities, mainly Stanford and MIT, they had opened up their online courses to the world, inviting anyone to take them for free. These courses were called MOOCs, or Massive Open Online Courses. In reference to another popular trend at the time, massive multiplayer video games online. Front page stories in the New York Times and cover stories of magazines, they touted these MOOCs as game changers for American higher education. Two of those Stanford professors, they started a company called Coursera, with backing from some of the same investors that had bet early on Google. And from the outset, the plan was to rethink everything about college teaching to do it cheaper and at scale. And there was this radical notion at the center that undergraduate and even graduate-level material could be delivered without a teacher, thanks to things like automated grading, peer grading by other students in the class, and discussion boards, where the most useful answers would rise to the top thanks to algorithms. Lots of college officials got really nervous. I mean, you could almost see the sweat beating on the PhD-trained foreheads around the country. As a sign of just how concerned even the most famous universities were in 2012, Harvard University and MIT each invested $30 million to form a competitor to Coursera to make sure that they were a player in this new space too. They called their nonprofit version of this edX. Whether you were nervous or happy, this was driving a lot of conversation. The trend actually changed my life. I was reporting on this for the Chronicle of Higher Education where I was working, and I kind of had a head start in understanding the context and some of the people involved. So I did what journalists do. I dug in. I filed Freedom of Information Act requests to find out the terms of the deals that Coursera was signing with public universities. And I flew around the country talking to key players and spent time with professors and students experimenting with all this. I even wrote a little ebook about the trend. And because of that work, and because this was such a huge issue at the time, I ended up landing a prestigious journalism fellowship at Harvard that let me investigate these MOOCs up close for a whole academic year. We moved the whole family up to Cambridge and learned so much. I say all this to remind listeners that a decade ago, MOOCs felt like a really big deal. These days, though, you don't hear that much about them. In fact, when I hear MOOCs mentioned at traditional colleges these days, it's often to make fun of them. As an example of inflated edtech hype, it seems almost like a way to reassure themselves that things aren't about to get revolutionized after all. But MOOCs never went away. In fact, they are booming, especially since the pandemic. And the people who backed Coursera, they won their bet. 
big time. In March of this year, Coursera went public and started trading on the New York Stock Exchange. It's valued at more than $3 billion. It's one of those rare companies that has so much money, it almost doesn't know what to do with it all. But what it is doing with all that money is refining its courses and its algorithms so that maybe one day it might deliver on the hype that people have now kind of forgotten about. It's trying to invent a different way to teach online that's cheap and can scale to hundreds of thousands of students instead of the traditional approach of a professor teaching 20 or 40 students at a time. So how do the latest courses being developed by Coursera and other MOOC companies compare to traditional college teaching? And should colleges be worried? Those are the questions that a longtime professor recently asked himself. That professor is Robert Talbert, and he is a math professor at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. He is someone who spent a lot of time thinking about how to improve college teaching. He's even written a book about an approach called flipped learning, where professors ask students to watch a lecture video before they come to class so that class time can focus more on experiences and other more active forms of learning instead of lecture. So I've talked to Talbert before over the years for stories, and he has always impressed me as someone who looks at new and innovative things with a mix of optimism and deep skepticism at the same time. It's kind of hard to do both of those. He is open to new ideas and even open to learning about teaching from places like Coursera, even if he is skeptical of their basic idea that you can teach hundreds of thousands without a professor. And so this summer, Talbert jumped in to take a relatively new Coursera course for himself to see what the platform's latest offerings are like. Actually, he took a six-course series to earn a certificate in project management that's jointly offered by Coursera and by Google. I recently saw Talbert's blog post about all this, and I was curious to hear more about what his experience was like and what lessons that he took away. In our conversation, it gets at some really deep questions about the future of learning, like how much can be automated about teaching and what it is exactly about having a live instructor that matters. So no matter how you feel about MOOCs or if maybe you'd never even heard of them, there are core questions in this conversation that will impact education at all levels. I started by asking Robert Talbert what caused him to take the time to go through this Coursera certificate. Part of it was that he was actually curious about the subject matter, about project management. But he said there was definitely more to it. And also, I just really wanted to see what sort of the state of the art was like in massive online courses. I've taken several of these, probably more than a dozen of these online courses before through Coursera and edX and Udacity and uh, probably some other uh, providers too. Um, and I thought, what what's the best that these people have to offer at this point? So if it's going to be Coursera, which is a big name, uh, they're doing extremely well in the marketplace, and they're teaming up with Google, which has, of course, ungodly resources to throw at this. And those two together, I mean, we ought to be looking at like the best possible online course given the current state of the art. And I just wanted to experience what that was like, since you know my I work in a traditional uh, brick and mortar university at Grand Valley State, and uh, we're exploring. Everybody is now exploring uh, online courses, and I just want to see what we're up against and what what we can what we uh, could aspire to. It, it strikes me that you're kind of like a, a retailer that you like, you're kind of go sneaking into the other guy's store to kind of see how it compares. 
There's absolutely a lot of that. <laughs> I just think it's smart to to, to look at what, uh, what look, let's face it, we're, we're, we do have competition uh, in traditional higher education. We have we, we, we shy away from this. We don't want to be a corporation or a business. But the fact is, I mean, we do compete with other people in a closed market space uh, that has finitely many resources. And so it's just a smart thing to do to see what other people are doing. And it's, it's also kind of fun to see how different people do things differently. And the question that you asked when you wrote this up for your, for your blog, is traditional higher ed in trouble from online course providers? And it seems like it seems like it's maybe you know I, I guess I'm curious maybe what did you expect now you know when you went into this as the answer to that question um, as you kind of look at the state of the art of what this different model of of offering online courses is um, compared to what you're used to and what traditional higher ed you know the, the, is doing. I wasn't entirely sure. I mean, I knew that. After during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, as we all went remote, we all went online, and then we sort of stuck around in the online space more than we used to after uh, coming back from lockdowns. That you know, there were some things that were working surprisingly well for us in traditional higher ed, and there were some things that really were not working well at all in traditional higher ed. And I'm not even sure if we were aware how bad some things really were getting. Um, so I was expecting to see, you know. The, the people like Coursera, Udacity, edX, the whole the whole uh, gamut there, doing a lot of things extremely well, but maybe missing the mark on a few things too. Like the the knock against MOOCs, and has always been, it's been justified, is that uh, the the feedback loop isn't there. Uh, you you can go into one of these courses, and all you do is just click buttons, and you don't interact with another human being. Everything is scaled up to the extent that there's not really the human element of uh, of education that we provide in the traditional university. So, I was, I was in so far as that aspect of the online course experience um, fell short, I was expecting it to fall way short. Like it even it's even worse now. So, and that that's the feedback loop. You mean the feedback loop between the professor and the student is what you're talking about or a human two humans or whatever, you know? Yeah, precisely. I mean, you, you know, the feedback loop being at the center of all human learning processes. I mean, you, you try something, you compare it against some sort of trustworthy standard and you have a trustworthy expert guiding you through this, giving you play by play on where things went well and where things didn't go well as well. And then you iterate, you try it again, and this just kind of keeps going and going. And that's uh, what all great traditional courses are built upon is this feedback loop. Um, and uh, I have never seen that done at scale uh, in, a, in a MOOC or even in a small online class. And so I was curious to see how, how much that had evolved uh, since then I, I know that Coursera is aware of this, right? That their offerings have this this critical weakness uh, that you know there's not the greatest feedback and not the greatest interaction. Interaction in an online class is just extremely hard to do well, and uh, that's uh, that's if there's any kind of Achilles heel weak point in an online massive online course, it's that. And so I was expecting that not to to, to be st- sort of still there, uh, possibly worse, maybe better with technology, but uh, unsure because. Uh, to uh, who who is the audience for this uh, certificate? That was that was a question I had going into it. Like, who's taking this thing? Who's spending? You know, do you have to pay for a subscription, a monthly subscription, uh, to get the course to get the certificate? 
And so it's a monthly monthly subscription, which means you try to complete as much of it as humanly as quickly as humanly possible. And that typically doesn't lead to great engagement with the ideas if you're just trying to blast through it. So um, it, it, I, I was curious to see what the student body uh, was like too. And that was a big unknown for me. On that metric, then, how did what you experience, you know, compare to what you were thinking? Well, I was I was uh, unsurprised that uh, the content and the product was really really polished. It was like way better than most most universities. Like the vast majority of universities cannot touch the quality of the video, the programming, uh, the the selection of tools, the 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 construction of the learning materials. Because uh, this is, like I said, it's Coursera, which you know raked in an enormous gob of money when they went public uh, earlier in the year, um, and then they have Google coming in on top of this, and Google has a vested interest in this because they're going through and and sort of, I, from what I understand, is that they're kind of mining some of the uh, data from people who are taking the course, and you know if if that is if you ever apply for a job at Google, you might have some sort of inroad because you did their certificate, you know. Uh, and I, there was it, that turned out to be the case. I mean, uh, the videos were uh, were incredibly professionally done. Um, the the, uh, the 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 learning materials, assignments, and quizzes, and so forth was was really widely varied. One thing that I did not expect to see was just the quality, the pedagogical quality of the learning materials. I mean, this is clearly uh, had put some serious time and effort. Uh, with probably a small army of instructional designers putting this together uh, for what we were studying, the sequencing of the activities that we did, um, uh, just everything had such attention to detail to it that it's very hard for uh, just a, a, a lone ranger professor or even a college professor with some support from their IT department to do something of that quality. Uh, I, was, I wasn't surprised at the level of the quality. I was surprised that the pedagogy has gotten a lot better on uh, online courses and MOOCs, at least for this one. Uh, that's just a sample of six. But, uh, you know, uh, I would say that uh, there was a lot of active learning taking place, uh, which is really hard to do in sort of an asynchronous online course to get people working actively on things. Yeah. Can you give me an example? I was going to ask, because I know a lot of our, our listeners know what pedagogy is, but it's a, such a jargony word. I mean, this is about kind of the really thoughtful approach to teaching and teaching practice. And what, can, yeah, give an example of one where that, that was like, had you thinking, oh yeah, this is this is pretty good. Sure. Yeah. So pedagogy just refers to the basically the choices you make when you're teaching and constructing a class. So you can have pedagogy that's primarily sort of lecture based and very quite passive in nature, or you can have pedagogy that's active in nature, gets students involved, gets learners involved in their own learning processes, and that's much better and much stronger for uh, long term learning. Um, in the past, when I've taken MOOCs before online courses, uh, the vast majority have been like watch this twenty minute lecture and then take this multiple choice quiz watch another 20-minute lecture, take another multiple-choice quiz, and it's just mind-numbing. And it's, to me, it's no wonder the, the completion rates are like in the single digits for most of these courses. I mean, who can stand it? I mean, it's just, I mean, there's so many things that I could do with my life besides, you know, spend it on that over and over and over again for what? Uh, but, for example, um, you know, it's project management, and so there's a lot of real-world applications to this. And so the whole uh, six-course sequence was kind of threaded through with this ongoing story, like you're a, uh, a fictitious project manager trying to help a restaurant launch this, uh, this product of theirs where they're going to try to use tablets instead of menus in the restaurant. Okay, and so the whole thing is just putting together this project and get, seeing it from beginning to completion. 
And so, you know, you'd learn about things uh, like uh, racy charts. Okay, it's a, it's a technical term. It's just basically a chart in project management that shows, like, who, who are the stakeholders, who's involved, and what level of communication do they want? What level of involvement do they want? And so you'd read the story. You'd read all these sort of made-up emails from the people involved in the restaurant and then say, okay, go make up a racy chart and bring it back. And uh, it was as simple as that. So, okay, now go actually apply the thing that you're being asked to do. And so we go and we'd make up our little charts and we'd, uh, we'd submit them. And uh, the, it was asynchronous, so there wasn't a chance to kind of bring it into a large group and discuss it with the professor there. So that was like, that was hard. It was kind of you know, pretty, pretty missing there, I would say. Um, but you could discuss it on the discussion board, and they did have pretty good uh, debriefing rubrics. So you could pop up the rubric and say, your chart should probably say this, 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 and this, and it should probably look like this. And so uh, that's, there's a feedback loop. And so it's actually starting to engage a little bit. So uh, every time you learn about something, you know, it was short lectures, you know, seven, six, seven minutes long, all done by uh, Google employees who happen to be project managers, not like some guy with a PhD in project management. That's a big, big difference, um, just to put a human face on things. And then after six or seven minutes, you take a little maybe short quiz to nail down some of the uh, uh, basic ideas you just heard about. So that's another good active learning technique. Not, not a multiple choice. Uh, some are multiple choice. Some are like select all the following. Some are short answer. And somehow, I guess it's Google, you know, so they have the power to, you know, look at your text response and know, you know, whether you're using the right words in the right quantities, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, it was mixed. It was a mix. And uh, that's good. You know, some variety in the quizzing was really helpful. And then you would go and do like a little mini project that connected up with other little mini projects. It was a pretty, pretty nice way to design a class, I thought. I, I was taking a lot of notes you know, as I was doing this. Okay, so you did did you have engagement though with a professor or other students and along the way because that's what one of those things you were really wondering if they could Yeah, the answer to that is definitely no. Because <laughs> there there is no there was no professor in the course. Okay, that's that's a in any of the six courses. So uh, that can be good and that can be bad. So every course had sort of a guide, I guess you could say. It was a Google employee who was a project manager, and uh, their job was to read off the script when the video is being shot, when the video lecture is being shot, okay, in, in a way that isn't boring and, and plastic and everything else. Um, they did not touch any of our assignments. So they, nobody you know, who was running the class was really running the class in that sense. It was just an actor, basically, except it wasn't really an actor. It was an actual Google person. Um, so the, the, the purpose of that Google person is just to put a human face on things and occasionally give some perspective on, here's what it's like when I was first learning this particular aspect of project management, or here's a difficulty that I had once and there's how I worked through it. But in terms of the actual product that we were producing, the assignments we were producing, um, yeah, there wasn't. it was supposed to be peer-graded. So you'd submit some things and it would go out and get assigned to two other students who would then grade it and then uh, with a rubric and then give the point values and uh, some, some verbal feedback. Quite often, it was pretty perfunctory. So yeah, the sorry, so I want to stop you there because I've, I've seen some of this approach too, but it's peer grading, which of course can be done and, and is sometimes done in a university setting as well, traditional universities. But with the online, this really solves one of the, the, the problems of on-demand, you know, anybody can come and just take it whenever. Um, so there isn't like a class gathered around like traditionally, but, but nonetheless, there's enough students out there that some other student is grading 
your work and you're grading some other students' work, right? Correct. And so how did that go as a practical matter when you're handing off your your assignment to some stranger or student and you get back something? Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was easy. I mean, it wasn't difficult to do. And that's kind of the problem. Uh, there wasn't a lot of resistance. I mean, there wasn't a lot of work put into a lot of the grading that happened. Uh, you could very easily just simply give a person a perfect score every single time and say, nice job, even if they did terrible on it. And um, that would be that. I mean, nobody ever checked up on you. And as far as I could tell, there was no sort of recourse if you were graded, uh, if you were unfairly graded in either the positive or negative direction. There was no, uh, as far as I could tell, again, um, there was no sort of quality control on this. And there was definitely no training on how to use the rubrics. So uh, none of us were trained evaluators, or if we were, it's because we were like me doing grading so much in other settings that we knew how to grade things. But absolutely, you know, one time I submitted a, <coughs> excuse me, I submitted an item, uh, and uh, it was it was an email, and you're supposed to get credit for like if certain pieces of the email were actually in the email. Like it has to have a it has to have a greeting, and it has to have an opening paragraph, it has to have this and this and this. Uh, quality was never really taken into account, which is kind of a problem, I think, when you're creating something like this. It was all just, is the thing there or not? So it made like completely idiot-proof to uh, to grade, except it wasn't completely uh, idiot-proof because some one of my peer graders one time gave me uh, like two out of ten because well you don't have a greeting you don't have this you don't have this and it was right there in in the in the in the form it's like okay well no big deal just you know go to the management and say like hey can i speak to a manager please and have this reinstated but there was no email there was nothing you could do and so i posted to the discussion board and it just kind of went silence you know no nobody responded so i just turned around and just resubmitted the exact same work with no changes and got a 10 out of 10 from somebody else <laughs> so wow. not exactly the highest level of uh quality control you want in student work you know um so it sounds like one way or another you did not be- you know come to trust the system as far as that style of work grading in this context yeah i it wasn't that i had an active distrust of things it's just when i got a 10 out of 10 i didn't have any idea what that means uh, <laughs> i have to just sort of trust my own understanding of whether i whether i think based on what i've seen in the class they might as well just have me grade myself honestly and it would have been a better i probably would have been you know more accurate than two complete strangers who may or may not know how to grade things so it sounds like you you're hypothesis here this part of it was correct it sounds like that you they maybe still haven't solved these giant move providers at least by this high profile course they haven't solved the feedback loop but i'm curious whether how you what your sense is on whether you think it's possible for their approach to somehow work in the future or if it's or if there's always going to be this advantage to the the approach you do in your own teaching at at your university yeah well that's that's the really big question isn't it because i mean i i believe and i wrote this on the blog that the first person to crack the code on assessment like authentic real assessment in these online spaces will win like they will win everything <laughs> because all the rest of what they're doing is very high quality honestly but doing that sort of careful authentic feedback loop at scale is a wickedly hard problem um uh, I I could offer some ideas for how to solve that, but it is very, very hard. I mean, I've taught small asynchronous courses of 15 people, and it's hard. Uh, uh, and so if you have 1,500 or 150,000 people taking a course, it's a... Uh, it's it's difficult to see how that's going to work. Uh, if the, if it's if anybody can do it, it's 
probably one of the existing providers who's got lots of experience partnering up with somebody who can handle all the data. So I'm looking right at Google and Coursera here. Uh, if, if those two stay teamed up, I, I would not be surprised if they came up with some kind of system, maybe something we've never even heard of before, that actually works, or at least works a little bit, and then can be iterated over time. But it's got to have something to do with when you submit work, it is actually going to be evaluated fairly and consistently and accurately against trustworthy, well-known professional standards. Uh, and it's not just, you know, well, I'm, I'm really hungry, I'm ready for dinner, so I'm going to give this guy a 7 out of 8. <laughs> or uh, I'm feeling really cranky today, so I'm going to give this guy a 1 out of 8. It's, it's got to be, you know, a, a high level of inter-rater reliability uh, correlated along the lines of professional standards, and we gotta, we got to be able to trust the results. So far, I, I still haven't seen an example where it works, but I think that could possibly be solvable with with technology and the use of peer grading. I, I don't have a sense of like exactly here's what you'd have to do to make this work because if I did that, I'd be rich. Um, but I do think that there's enough textual data flowing inside and outside of these courses that you got to be able something's got to be usable in that. It sounds like your guess is they also see this as the problem they need to fix. Um, they being these providers, this style provider. I'd be really surprised if they weren't thinking about this problem day and night. <laughs> if I were Coursera, I would be, because that's the one big uh, missing link in dominating some more of this higher education space. Um, and, uh, you know, because uh, uh, Coursera is not getting tired right now. I mean, professors are tired. Professors have had enough, and we all want, like, five years of vacation right now. Uh, Coursera is ready to go every morning. So they have they have the advantage of, uh, like, strength in numbers, and they can just keep plugging away at this problem forever. And they need to. They will, because they're a corporation. That's what they do. Uh, and they have all the other stuff in place, the money, the, the staffing, the, 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 the personnel, the technology. The, it's just the, the assessment part of this is the big, big missing piece. And so that, that's, that's got to be top of mind for most people at Coursera. I'd be really surprised if it wasn't. So back to your question, is traditional higher ed in trouble from online course providers? What is your... What is your final answer? My final answer is yes, but actually no. <laughs> the answer is so, so definitive, I know. So we, we, we in traditional higher education uh, had better start paying attention to these folks uh, because and stop writing them off. That's, that's been the, the line for since around 2014 when MOOCs started really ramping up and sort of taking over things. I remember very clearly uh, around 2014 when my provost at the time was you know, made mention of this, like, we're actually really scared about MOOCs. And I was like, oh, are we really? I took a MOOC. And it's like, there's absolutely nothing to be scared of. They're kind of a joke right now. They're no longer a joke. Okay? They are they are catching up really, really fast. And like I said, they've got strength in numbers, incredible amounts of money and resources, and, uh, and they're paying attention to what we do, so we need to pay attention to what they do, or else we're going to be completely overtaken by them uh, at some point, fair, fairly or otherwise. I'm not saying it would be an improvement to go to be overtaken by Coursera. Obviously, I'm a little biased on that. But um, the fact of the matter is, I mean, more and more people are looking to these providers for their higher education. They're looking for alternatives. Uh, I've got a 17-year-old daughter who's looking at alternatives. She doesn't want to go to college right now, or maybe ever, but she does want to get some options in her life. And, you know, so maybe a Coursera type of thing would be perfect for her. Um, so we are in trouble if we don't start looking around and paying attention and taking other people seriously. 
Uh, but we're not really in that much of trouble because we've still got the feedback loop on our side. That's what we do best when we are at our best. When traditional higher education focuses on students and stays focused on the learner uh, at the center of everything that you do, uh, you've got the Coursera's beat okay, all day, every day, 10 times out of 10. But when, if we start to lose that focus on students, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be over quickly. Uh, because students aren't having it, uh, you know, learners aren't having it, prospective students aren't having it, parents aren't having it. They do not want to spend all that money to send their kids to a place or send themselves to a place that just fundamentally doesn't care about them. Uh, but if you can communicate that through the way you do your classes, the way you set up your structures, the way you conduct yourselves, both inside a class and outside a class, you're, I think we can be okay. I think despite everything, despite the, 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 the demographic apocalypse and COVID and everything else, you stay focused on students and make them the center of what you do, there's hope. There's plenty of hope. It's interesting because at EdSurge, we write a lot about you know technology and education and this intersection of tech and ed. And one of the things that comes up in a lot of tools is, you know, I think of um, automatic essay grader software and um, course, uh, courseware that, you know, by major textbook publishers that can kind of auto grade the, you know, the assignments in a large lecture class, say. And it strikes me that, um, you know, this is the, the very thing, you know, some of these solutions are selling that they can save professors time by getting you, getting professors out of the grading business. But part of what your argument is, is that the grading business is actually the, the one advantage. The human grader is the advantage of the, of the traditional model. That's an extremely interesting point, Jeff. I, I tend to agree with it. As much as I dislike actually grading things, I have a, I have a load of it to do uh, tomorrow, actually. But uh, it, it is the point of contact, uh, both that and the classroom. That's where we touch our students' lives. And so, uh, you know, I think technology has a lot of good to play in our profession uh, in the sense of augmenting what we do, right? Helping us to get closer to students and helping us to build relationships with students. Insofar as technology helps do that, uh, then I, I want all the technology I can get. But if technology starts to get in the way of that or does it for me, uh, I'm a little suspicious, honestly. So auto-grading student essays, mm, I don't know if I would, even if they were like the world's greatest AI, they could just straight up grade an essay as well as I would. I still think I would probably want to at least take a look at it, <laughs> you know, the student's essays. I want to know what my students are thinking. This is, I'm, I'm the person who determines whether or not uh, students are learning things. And that's, that's not uh, uh, something that can be automated into an algorithm uh, at all, even very easily. So, yeah, I think grading, I think the, what the real challenge for us is we also have to reform the way that we grade things. And that's a whole other interview that you and I could have at some point. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's something very much top of mind for me is uh, just the way that we grade and the way that we assign grades is completely broken and has been for almost 100 years. And we're not doing much about that. Uh, but we are trying to look to technology to stop the grading. So I don't know. Uh, and what we need to do is continue to build relationships with students through any means necessary. And if tech can help with that, then I'm all for it. But if tech gets in the way, I don't want it. You mentioned that traditional higher ed should be paying attention to what these, you know, giant well-funded corporations like Coursera are doing to create alternatives. What are some things that you take away from this series of courses you just took what are some things that, that a professor like yourself might learn from it or, you know? 
what what can be learned? What can traditional higher ed learn from these from this space today? Sure. Well, I think one thing, uh, just basic uh, pedagogy, classroom in the trenches uh, activity. You know, if you don't lecture so much, uh, first of all, uh, and if you're gonna lecture, keep it short and focused. I mean, that's just basic teaching one one as far as I'm concerned. But a lot of professors have this. That might be the first time they've ever heard this. Uh, the, you know, the video lectures in the Coursera courses, there were a lot of them. There's more lecturing than I would have cared for, but there was a lot of content to get through as well. Uh, they were all six to seven minutes long, focused on one thing, and uh, always couched in some sort of helpful example slash story, so it's stuck, right? It's not just the transfer of information. Like, we're way past the transfer of information. I, I mean, Google, of all people, should know we're way past the transmission of information, uh, it's more about connecting with the person who is listening and making it easy for them to do. And so having recorded video itself is, a, is a something that I think a lot of people could learn uh, some things from. I think mo- many of us learned the value of that during the pandemic when we were teaching remotely, whether we wanted to or not, and uh, realized, hey, if, if I'm going to lecture, why don't I make a recorded video of the lecture that's no longer than seven minutes long because the human attention span is about 10 minutes long and uh, stick it online where students can get to it you know, play it at half speed or double speed or auto-tune it or whatever they feel like doing and uh, just make it work for them on, on the bus, you know, when you got five minutes and you're killing time. And uh, that really worked out well for those of those of us who do video and have been doing video for a while. So, I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, that's, that's a, a really valuable thing to do. And technology, that's a place where technology can step in and uh, create a pathway, a more direct pathway between the professor and the student is by taking the lecture out of the picture and saying, like, okay, when I'm in, when you're face to face with me, I mean, God knows after the pandemic, I mean, that face to face time is the most valuable thing ever. I'm not going to waste it on something that can just as easily, if not better, be put onto a video. So let's learn this. Uh, If you're going to do a lecture, follow it up with some activities, simple stuff like quizzes or little uh, infographic type activities where you just put what you're learning into practice on a very basic level and it'll make it stick more. Um, Even the idea of being approachable as an instructor. uh, I mentioned that none of the people who were sort of the human faces of the courses were PhDs and whatever, project management or whatever. They were a diverse group of uh, men, women, people of color, and they were all just normal folks. And, uh, you know, there's something about that that I think a lot of people would find welcoming. I think many students are intimidated by people like me uh, coming in, you know, white dude, middle age, you know, with a PhD. And it's like, wow, how am I supposed to connect with this person? But it was very easy to connect with the people who are running these Coursera courses because they were just ordinary people who happen to work at Google. So there's, there's a lot there uh, that you could lump under the general heading of things that help a teacher, an instructor, uh, connect better with students and pay more attention to what they're actually learning or not learning. It's such an interesting um, review that that you have here of of this course sequence because I think I think it is you know an interesting thing. I've taken a couple of these MOOCs early days, and I, it's been a while since I did. It makes me realize. I should just for my own understanding of the space, I should go take another one too. Um, and I guess it is time consuming to do. How much did you end up um, paying? You mentioned that you want to kind of race through it as fast as possible because you're paying by the month. How, how, how long did it take you and how much did you pay? 
Um, I actually cannot remember the monthly fee. It might have been $39 a month, something in that neighborhood. It wasn't like hundreds a month or it wasn't free either. And I, th I started uh, when school ended back in May, and I just went May, June, July, and I finished up in August. So it was four months. I was probably spending, I did. I had a kind of a light summer, so I thought, oh, let's, let's draw some time into this. I may have been spending 10 hours a week on it, you know. Um, yeah, so that's about how long it took. Some people I know get done, can, will sit down and finish it in three days, uh, which is crazy. I mean, I don't know what you're learning, but some people do. So you're you, but your co overall total cost was like 150 or less. A couple sure. hundred dollars, yeah. And I think that's yeah. I think that's probably a fair price to pay for what I got. I got a good certificate. I learned a lot. It made me want to learn more, right? So if I want to go off and pay for like the really the the actual the PMP project management professional certificate or whatever, uh, which is a lot more work and a lot more money. I'm mean, at least I'm set up well to continue studying, and I, I think that's probably. Paying a couple hundred bucks for me for that, I, I think was, that was worth it. It was fun. And you did, like you said, you did learn, you learned something you felt like. It wasn't just, despite the peer grading thing and the other thing, you, you felt like you were getting something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I always go into these things learning not only the content, but also the pedagogy by which I'm getting the content, because I live in kind of both worlds here. Yeah, so I was learning stuff all over the place. It was great. That's all I ask for is that I'd learn something when I take one of these courses. I'm so interested in what your daughter ends up picking and the the future. So we'll have to have you back uh, to get an update on all of this. But thank you so much for, for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. This has been the Ed Search Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations and stories about the future of learning. If you want to read that blog post by Robert Talbert to hear his whole review, you can find that link on our show page at edsurge.com. And to get bonus links on every episode we do, sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter. Just go to edsearch.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. And yes, as I said at the top, please give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to subscribe as well. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or shoot me a line at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Montplaisir. That track is called Robotic Faith. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.